The EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is November 23rd, and I talk to Dr. Kaya Schilde, an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University, Pardee School of Global Studies. My name is Kaya Schilde. I'm an assistant professor at the Pardee School of Global Studies here at Boston University. Great. What's the future emerging now in Europe? Would you mind repeating the question? Of course. What's the future emerging in Europe? Uh, The future emerging in Europe has a number of different trajectories. One is that uh, I expect that European integration will proceed in the way it has in the past, which is that increasing integration follows crisis. So that means that Uh, Every time there's a major crisis in a certain area, foreign policy, finance, sovereign debt, migration, I expect that even though things will look rough for a few, few years or a period of time, that after that period of time, you'll see there being more European cooperation, more EU integration in those areas. Now, the one thing that I think is undermining that potentially is the increasing anti-system populist sentiment in European states that is growing and building by the day that is the uncertainty in this process because it undermines the consensus that has existed, the somewhat centrist consensus that has existed in the last half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century about finding cooperation at the end of the day. And so this may be one of the first deviations from that one step back, two steps forward process of European integration that we have seen that I generally expect to see. But that is the one exception, is that if we continue to see uh, movements such as UKIP uh, promoting Brexit and Brexit happening, Brexit vote happening, uh, Le Pen in France, the election coming up in Austria, where a fascist candidate may well carry uh, the day. Um, If you see that increasing, that will have implications for European integration and for the future of Europe. But it won't, it it will be a situation that's somewhat unprecedented where you have partial authority on the part of, of, of the part of European Union for some policy areas. And this, the way out of these crises is to give the EU more authority or to cooperate more, at least for a period of time. But you will see almost a hijacking of that and a decay from below where the problems will still exist and they will only deepen. The problems such as migration and, and uh, refugees, the problems such as security gaps and lapses that produce terror attacks in Europe, the problems such as, such as coordinating over fiscal and uh, budgetary uh, policy, those problems will not be resolved by any further fragmentation politically. They'll only be deepened. And so it'll be a completely unprecedented situation that I don't know the outcome of. So 
last year European Union was trying to cope with with an influx of refugees and apparently it gave birth to migration refugee crisis across across Europe so how would you assess how would you assess the existing migration problem within Europe I don't think the migration crisis is a crisis I think it's comparable to flows of people and refugees that have happened previously inside Europe and across European boundaries such as the flows of people that came from the former Balkans um, and in the 1990s, and even flows that happened more recently, where a lot of the population of Central Europe um, flowed across boundaries and internally based on the flooding that happened a few years ago. And so the amount of people is actually nothing special. And I don't, I don't mean to sound so crass when I say that, but that's not a crisis. The political response is a crisis, or the political non-response. And I've said before that the overall migration and refugee crisis globally cannot be resolved easily, but what's happening inside Europe is a non-response that could be resolved in an afternoon. And the reason it's not being resolved is essentially because of cowardice, political cowardice on the part of leaders who have very real concerns that are true, that they would be thrown out of power if they make certain decisions that look too progressive or globalist at this point in time. But um, you already have a pre-existing condition where you have internal openness, you already have a lot of um, shared sovereignty over an issue, and so the solutions, unfortunately, can't be local. They have to be European in terms of coordinating asylum responses, and border responses to the refugee and migration uh, increase, I would say. It's not a crisis, it's an uptick you know, of a pre-existing situation that could be dealt with very reasonably you know, when it comes to reallocation of asylum, processing of asylum, um, that could be dealt with in a coordinated manner that is not happening. Could you elaborate more about this asylum system and what's, not, what's working, what's not working? Well, it's essentially... Uh, completely failed system of, uh, of having to uh, register in the place that you arrive. Um, and that system was put in place in the 1990s because of the fact that the main concern about refugees and migrants in the 1990s what they would, was that they would double dip in welfare systems because uh, national welfare systems were at the time still quite robust. The main concern about migrants and refugees would, were that they would take welfare and that they would take two welfare checks from two different states. That's almost a quaint and completely anachronistic concern at this point in time. The main, more concern is that you know it's actually migrated to the fact that the people consider them a security threat. And um, the fact that you're incentivizing people to not register for asylum in the state they land in because they want to register in a different state where they actually feel like they'd be more secure, be able to find a job or have a better chance of actual asylum. It's created a system where I heard that in places like Italy, only 10% of people landing are actually registering for asylum in Italy and the rest of them are completely undocumented. So that actually is a security concern <laughs> that you have people incentivized not to be documented and not to register for asylum. Um, and so it's essentially just chaos. The entire system is, is chaos built on the concerns of uh, the political concerns of 30 years ago. Um, one could imagine a coherent system of European asylum that it wouldn't necessarily be centralized, but would at least be coordinated. 
on some kind of standard that wouldn't just be the lowest common denominator standard, that would be somewhere in the middle of a expansive progressive system and a more restrictive um, system of as- asylum. But right now you just have venue shopping and chaos. And uh, in a, this ideal type European asylum system that's not going to be put in place, but that should be put in place, would be coordinated, uh, would be uh, streamlined, would be able to get people off the streets. Why are people in, the, in tents in European streets? You know, it could get people off the streets if you had a coordinated system. Um, and then it would also allow people to register for European asylum from other places. You could register for European asylum from Turkey, you know, in this, in this hypothetical uh, good system that's not being put in place. Right now, in order to be considered for European asylum, you have to risk death to get to Europe, to land on European borders. That's the only mechanism, which is incentivizing uh, crime, incentivizing trafficking, fueling criminal behavior in that way, if you criminalize trafficking, um, and also leads directly to death because people are uh, risk taking major risks to be able to be considered for European asylum as it stands right now. So it's indirect, but it is also at the same time direct in terms of the policies or the non-policies of the EU lead directly to human risk, death, and criminal incentivization. What if you look at a question in terms of culture, culture, culture and identity? How is that affecting the way they are trying to address the migration issue? Issue, given that most of the migrants are coming from Middle East, Africa, and Afghanistan. I mean, the, and some of them, or most of them, are Muslims. How do you think this cultural identity perspective is affecting the way the European politicians are kind of? Oh, it's a, it's absolutely affects it completely. I think that if the people were white and Christian coming in, um, it would be a non-issue. I think that it's the, the hidden missing variable in explaining much of this. Because what are the um, politicians afraid of? They're afraid of the right-wing parties and the populist parties. What are the populist and right-wing parties against? The other. So you can trace a direct line. It's just a subtext. It's not the text. So, How would you describe the state of democracy uh, in, in Europe, let's say, in a more broader way? Poor. I mean, I can't sit here in Boston in the United States right now and, and critique other people's democracies. Um, it's difficult to do so uh, because the state of U.S. democracy appears incredibly poor right now, too, in terms of the resilience of institutions and norms. But I would say by itself in Europe, the state of democracy is incredibly poor. That, that's because, in general, European governments are, for, for the most part, European governments, not the EU, are for the, mo- for the most part are proportional representation systems, which is a highly flexible arrangement, which often reflects public sentiment very easily. Um, it means that good ideas, like ideas that are often uh, civil rights or human rights or different kinds of progress, are achieved more quickly in European systems than in other systems such as the United States. But it also means that if there is sentiment based on economic stagnation or secular economic decline, that those um, discontent that discontent shows up more quickly in European governments. 
I'm being vague, but I'm basically saying that European governments have been affected by um, this anti-system behavior and extremist behavior in a way that predates the United States. And it also, there's not a path out of yet. I mean, this is just going to have to be generational change. It's going to take a generation. But I think the quality of democracy is poor. The individual politicians might be of high quality, but they're making often poor, cowardly decisions, especially on the topic of the migration and refugee crisis. Also on the topic of um, finance and austerity. You know, they're making often poor, cowardly decisions that go against their their political parties, their their training, um, their impulses, because of um, they will if they if they make decisions that appear to appear a certain way, they will get voted out of office. They know that. So that's what makes them poor. And that's what makes the quality of democracy quite poor right now. Because you have people hanging on to power because of um, fear right now and making decisions that are incredibly weak and letting very, very poor arrangements continue, like the Dublin Accords. How do you see the role of citizens in impacting political processes and decision-making at EU level? To what extent can European Union citizens have an impact on all these processes? Well, I, what I've been saying over the last few minutes has everything to do with national governments and not the EU governing governance process. It's a question we talk about a lot in my classes. You know, the, when I talk about the European Union, we talk about it from the point of view of a democratic deficit or an alleged democratic deficit. The EU, compared to states has less access and voice on the part of citizens in their decision-making. There have been reforms about this. Um, there are systems where um, citizens can register um, comments on EU law, can consult with EU law. It doesn't really change outcomes, but they can say publicly on a website um, their opinions about something. But um, more than anything, I would be vigilant if I were a European citizen about transparency at the EU. Um, nobody who works for the EU is more or less ethical than anyone who works in national governments. So I'm saying the EU is not necessarily corrupt at all, but they've been functioning according to norms, just loose norms about saying that they won't be corrupt, which is never good enough, especially as EU governance becomes more political and more salient. And so uh, there are watchdog groups, um, and there's a transparency register. Transparency International has been writing reports up about EU governance and EU transparency. And I would, if I were a EU citizen, let the Commission know that doing things like working for Goldman Sachs or taking a job with Goldman Sachs while you're still a commissioner or immediately afterwards is completely unacceptable. Um, and it's one thing to say, oh, trust us, you know, we have European norms and values and we're behaving accordingly. But um, there has to be an almost um, Anglo-American level of transparency at the EU level that I know doesn't always exist even in European capitals. But with the amount of regulatory power the EU has, um, that kind of transparency is, is vital. Do you think it's achievable? It could be done? I don't know. I, th I think it's achievable. I think that companies who do business, um, who have uh, interests 
in lobbying the EU should register themselves for transparency registers. Um, it's voluntary right now, but um, it's the only way that the system of EU government and governance and regulatory uh, policy and lawmaking becomes more legitimate. Because right now, I'm not saying it's corrupt. I'm saying that there's a high risk of um, it being theoretically corrupt. You talked a little bit about nation nationalism, rising populism across Europe. And we, we have seen that Donald Trump was elected as a president, next president of the United States. And a week ago, Marine Le Pen announced that election of Donald Trump has encouraged her, has encouraged her political ambitions to carry on her political ambitions. How do you think this this gonna affect this gonna affect populist movement in Europe? I mean, in general, the election of Donald Trump in the U.S. and its impact on Europe. Well, I don't know if there's necessarily necessarily a relationship between the election of one person in one place and another place in another place. You would have to have a theory that actually links that. You know, you'd have to say there's a mechanism of diffusion in a way that says that voters are inspired by or um, mobilized by events elsewhere, right? So I would consider that a testable hypothesis. I would say to what degree voters in France, um, are, to what degree are voters in France mobilized by the results of the U.S. election or to what degree Voters in the U.S. election were mobilized by the result of Brexit or something like that, if I were to ask that question. Because I, I would assume from the start that there is no relationship, that it has to be demonstrated, right? Even though people say there is, I would problematize that. So on the other hand, though, um, I remember sitting in my kitchen in September 2008 as Lehman Brothers fell and as you know, the global financial system was nearing collapse and saying, next 10 years are going to be brutal, you know, in terms of populism. I just, beyond that general thought and the analogy to the 1930s, the relationship between economic collapse and populism, I didn't have a thought as to how far that would have gone. I could have never imagined that, you know, a reality TV show host, you know, who um, said that he would jail his political opponent and wouldn't respect the result of an election could possibly be elected to the highest office in the United States. I never imagined sitting in my kitchen in 2008 that that would be the outcome. But I did, I did think that there was something structural about the relationship between economics and politics. And so I think that it wouldn't, you asked the question almost in terms of a diffusion question, and I would ask the question, if we had the luxury of looking at all these cases as a social science um, question, I would ask whether or not that's happening because of a diffusion from case to case, or whether there are, these things are all being produced by the same underlying structural phenomena of secular economic decline. Does that make sense? I feel like we're still too in it to answer that question, though. So you, you can go ahead if you want to answer that question. I can't, well. I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. I would, I would argue that it's not because, of, I would probably guess that it's not because of diffusion from Brexit to Trump to Le Pen. I would argue it's probably because of underlying decay, economic decay, because of uh, neoliberalism, globalization without intervention, corrective intervention on the part of states. So. What kind of future would you like to see? What's, would you like to see in Europe, or in what kind of Europe would you like to live to see? 
in actually existing? That's a good question. Um, I, I think that once you, once you open the Pandora's box of integration, European integration, once you start down the path of especially political integration at the EU, not necessarily economic market integration, but political integration, the formation of institutions that actually take on formerly nation state functions, then you don't undo that without major disruption. So I think that integration will and probably should proceed with there being more EU. But the problem is, and that, that'll, that will be the best outcome for European citizens, for uh, societies and markets and stability and democracy. The problem is, is that it can't just proceed on the trajectory it has been proceeding. There have to be massive reforms on the part of the EU when it comes to transparency, democracy, civil liberties, and things like that. Because secrecy and lack of transparency is a huge problem at the EU. So you can't, for example, let's, let's, t let's make it specific. The EU has major internal security problems. It has terrorist plot plots being hatched one hour away across borders that you know can they're major Achilles heels on the part of European security services. It doesn't matter how good French intelligence is when the plot's being hatched in Brussels, right? You have a lack of borders. Now European um, officials have called for there to be stronger border security, external border security in response to this, which I think is actually nonsensical because the threat's coming from within, not from outside. But what the EU d does need is more internal security authority, meaning that they should have an agency with authority to track um, movement and potential uh, intelligence gaps internally, flows of trafficking of arms and drugs and things like this, and internal security threats. I think that that's completely appropriate. The problem is, is that you would want citizens in Europe to have the ability to rein that institution in, in some way, some mechanism for even asking for things to be declassified or freedom of information requests or some kind of checks and balances on that and that doesn't exist right now. So you have a functional need for a thing, which I think is completely appropriate, for people not to be blown up inside Europe in the future. I think the EU has to have some kind of authority over that area, even just capability to look at metadata or something. But there is a huge democratic problem with that in that this authority, if it proceeds in the um, trajectory it has, will be highly violating to civil liberties in Europe. I think there is a way that you could give the EU more authority and more competence and also reform it. But I don't see there to be any will for any of that anywhere in any European capital right now, which is not good in terms of being a European citizen who is both physically secure and has rights. So do you see any kind of collision in terms of state interest and state functions and state sovereignty and giving, creating such kind of institution with such functions at EU level, at supranational level? Of course there is, but it, that has already been happening. So we're already three time steps in. So the question is, do you blow that up and create disruption, or do you work with it and reform? Yes, there's a loss of sovereignty. There always is. 
But there are reasons why states often give up sovereignty voluntarily over things um, because of collective action problems, because of external threat or internal threat. Um, the question is to what degree, I'm not concerned about states giving up sovereignty over something. That's, I consider that to be, I don't know, that happens. I'm more concerned about states giving up sovereignty and democratic oversight. That's the democratic oversight that I'm much more concerned about than the sovereignty. Does that make sense or is that too abstract? It's not, it's not okay. abstract, at least to me, but okay. uh, if you want to explain <laughs> it a little bit about in terms of democratic oversight. Well, uh, uh, oversight for listeners. Yeah, uh, oversight, um, it, it's of course different in every European state or in, in every state, but uh, one version of oversight is being able to have elections, you know, and to throw the bums out if you don't like them, right? That's one version of democratic oversight. Another version of democratic oversight is uh, declassification, freedom of information laws. Right now, those are non-existent and actually move in the opposite direction at the EU level, where European institutions actually say they can't declassify things right now to citizens. Democratic oversight would be a free and fair media, you know, covering, um, robustly covering institutions and affairs. And so I fear that you move policy areas outside of that oversight. I'm not that concerned about member states losing sovereignty over things. Sovereignty is a very flexible and fluid thing. Member states lose sovereignty over things that have nothing to do with the EU, like financial globalization. I'm much more concerned about reintroducing democratic oversight at the EU level as a reform. Thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about, to share? No, actually, those last few points were key ones that are usual, usually ones that I like to talk about. You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.